0: Um, It is perhaps the most loved, um, maybe most hated, most studied, most misunderstood, misinterpreted, controversial, polarizing book in the history of the world. It's the Bible. Um, If you've ever read the Bible, you know that at times it can be frustrating because sometimes we want it to be clear and it's not. Sometimes we want it to say something and we're not sure if it's actually saying it or not. It's a bit muddy, it's a bit foggy. And so it frustrates us and we wonder, why doesn't it just come out and say what it means? And so when you read it, if you've ever read it, you know that it can be a bit frustrating, but also it can be a bit terrifying because sometimes we read it and it is absolutely clear. There's no wiggle room, there's no questions, there's no doubts, there's no what ifs, it's very clear. And in those moments, sometimes it can be tough to swallow. Uh, This book, the Bible, uh, if you read it, you will find that there's parts that will warm your heart. It'll inspire you, it'll motivate you. Uh, There's also parts inside this book that will hurt your head. You read it and you're like, what? What does that mean? How do I even know what that is supposed to mean? Uh, There's parts of this book that we find inspiring. There's parts shocking, confusing, embarrassing, Uh, we read the Bible sometimes, maybe you've experienced this before, I certainly have. We read the Bible and we find answers to some really big questions, but sometimes we go to the Bible for answers and all we leave with are more questions. It's an interesting book. Uh, There's not really another book that we can compare to it. Some people read this book and believe. Other people read the Bible and choose not to believe. But here's the really scary thing. There are many, many, many people. I fear the majority of people who have decided whether they believe or disbelieve what's in this book having never read this book. Hey, do you believe the Bible? Oh yeah, have you read it? No. (laughs) Hey, do you believe the Bible? No way. Hey, have you ever read it? No, but I know enough famous last words. And so maybe one of those descriptors are you. Maybe you've read it and chose to believe. Maybe once upon a time you read it and you chose not to believe. Maybe you've decided you believe or disbelieve and you've never even read this book. Every year in America, because the Bible still, people are very interested in the Bible. Matter of fact, the majority of people wanna know, how does this book correlate to their personal life? Uh, People who don't even really follow Jesus, they're curious about, is there anything inside this book that can help me experience life, live life better? And so people are curious about the Bible. That's one reason why there's 45 million of these sold in America almost every single year. And then there's another 100 million sold around the world. Then on top of that, there's 400 million Bibles given away for free all over the world almost every single year. It has been the best-selling, most distributed book since it came off the printing press in 1455. And for those of you who didn't know it, this was the first book that rolled off the printing press that belonged to old Johann Gutenberg, all (laughs) right? That was my best shot at German. It was pretty stinky. But anyway, I thought I'd give it a shot. But the Bible itself has an interesting history to it. In 1631, uh, less than 200 years after it rolled off the printing press, uh, the royal publishers of London decided to release a new edition of the Bible, a new translation, because there's always new translation as language develops. And so they decided in 1631 that they were going to print a new version of the King's Bible, uh, except there was a typo. And they left out one word and you're like, well, how important could one word be that's left off? Well, this 1631 edition became known as the sinner's Bible or the wicked Bible because in Exodus 20 verse 14, there was one word missing. In that particular version, it said thou shalt commit adultery. (laughs) And that created a problem. So they gathered up all the Bibles that they could. They burned some. The rest, you know, they they were thrown away. And there's only like a handful that that still exists today. Uh, Something else you should know about the Bible, just so as we kind of wade into this series, uh, it is the most shoplifted book in the history of the world. Now think about that. How does that work? You swipe a Bible, apparently you don't know what's in it. So you swipe a Bible, you start in Genesis. Hey, it's a pretty good story. You get over to Exodus chapter 20, Thou shalt not steal and you're like, oh crap. What do I do now? Well, you're gonna have to read the rest of the book to figure out what you should do now. Because if not, you're gonna be looking for some animals to kill and we're like, hey, we're past that. Some of you have not read it. You have no idea what I'm even talking about. The word Bible actually comes from a Greek phrase to Biblia, which actually is translated the books or the scrolls. And the reason that we call the Bible the Bible, and I figured, hey, for, you know, this week and next week, we're just going to start on the ground level and just assume that we don't really understand the Bible, that we don't understand some of the basics. Because sometimes going back and revisiting the basics helps us understand those things that are not so basic. But the reason that we call the Bible or the reason that the Bible is called the Bible is because it is actually not one book. It is not a book, it is a collection of books. It is a collection of scrolls. Matter of fact, the Bible is 66 different books that have been collected and bound in one particular volume and published as what we know as the Bible. Uh, We have divided it into two sections, the Old Testament, and the New Testament. The Old Testament is about God's history in dealing with one particular nation. The New Testament is all about God's plan now for all the other nations. In the Old Testament, you find 39 different books. You find books of law, beginning with Judges. You know, Judges, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then you're going to find books of history. Then you're going to find books of poetry. And then you're going to find books of the prophets. uh, Major prophets. Minor prophets. Not because one group was more important than the other, but because the major prophets wrote more. And so when they wrote a lot, they called them a major prophet. And when they wrote a little, they called them a minor prophet. So that's the Old Testament. And then the New Testament, you have gospels, you have biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark and Luke. And I'm gonna throw some things out because I want you to learn and I want you to understand this book, which is a big, big deal, not only to our faith, but also as we see the world and not only that, but how we see each other, how we understand God. So in the New Testament, there's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they're called synoptic gospels. That means they all wrote from the same optic, the same perspective. The Gospel of John, very different. The Gospel of John only covers 21 days in the life of Jesus. Matter of fact, from chapter 13 on, it only covers the final seven days of Jesus' life. So you have the Old Testament. You have the New Testament. And in the New Testament, you've got the gospels. you got letters written by Paul, letters written by Peter, written by John, written by James, They have brothers. Jesus, Jude, some others that were not really certain exactly who may have wrote that particular book, like the book of Hebrews. And then you have the final book, the book of the Revelation, which is a book of apocalyptic nature, uh, of language that is about, you know, future things and prophecy. And so that's kind of how the Bible is divided up. It was written originally in three different languages on three different continents, now, some of you, you probably don't know this, but the Bible took 1,500 years. That's how long from the time of Moses until the first century. Basically, that's, that's the time the Bible was written over. The books inside the Bible. That, that's the, the span of time that it took to collect and to write all of these books. Uh, the people who wrote this uh, includes 40 different authors. Some say 45, but no less than 40 different authors contributed to the Bible. Some were kings. Some were fishermen. Uh, some were legislators. Uh, some were philosophers. Uh, Some were tax collectors, one was a gentile physician, one was a Pharisee who made tents on the side and, and, and it just goes on and on and on of all the different people who authored a book or a portion of the Bible. And I say all of that to say this, that there isn't another book like the Bible. No matter what you think about the Bible, no matter what your opinion is about the Bible, there is not another book in circulation. Like the Bible, so regardless of how you feel about the Bible, whether you think it's true or untrue or part true or half true, whether you think it's clear or confusing, whether you think it's helpful or hurtful, doesn't really matter. Whatever your perspective may be, whatever your thoughts about, whatever your feelings about the Bible, this series that we're starting today is a series just for you. It doesn't matter how much of the Bible you already know. It doesn't matter how much of the Bible you think you don't know. Doesn't matter how much of it you believe or you're not sure about. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Where you fit in. This series is just for you because for the next few extended weeks, we are going to be talking about this big idea here, that the story of scripture, the story of scripture helps us make sense of all the other stories in scripture. Before you try to memorize the different stories in the Bible or understand individual stories in the Bible and, and what they mean for you or what they mean for somebody else. And, and before you concern yourself with the parts of of the Bible because that's what we love to do. We love to talk about these stories of the Bible and the parts of the Bible without giving thoughtful glance at the story of the Bible and the whole Bible as one particular unit. And so what I hope happens over the next few weeks, because I, I wondered whether to tell you this or not, but I think you're a mature audience and I think you can handle it. We're going to be in this series until the end of this year. And so we're going to track through some really important things over the next 12 to 13 weeks. And my goal is that you would get clarity and that we would all get certainty about what the story of scripture is. What is the story that the Bible is actually telling? And what does that mean for you? What does that mean for me? What does that mean for us? What does it mean for the world? I want you to learn how to read the Bible more thoughtfully. I want you to learn how to read the Bible maybe a new way. I want you to learn how to read the Bible maybe for the first time in your life. I want you to have a greater appreciation for and a deeper confidence in this book that we call the Bible. Now, today and next week are introductions to this particular series. Uh, today we're going to talk about what we're going to talk about today. And next week we're going to talk about how we got the Bible. Who gave us the Bible? Was a bunch of old white haired men in a room somewhere once upon a time and decided what got in or what got out. How did we actually get the Bible and what does that mean for us? And can we trust the Bible? Uh, are there mistakes in the Bible? Uh, are there contradictions in the Bible? We're going to talk about that next week. And then on week three, we're going to start full goal in Genesis chapter one. And we're going to talk about the creation of the world. And we're going to talk about science. And we're going to talk about what we're supposed to believe about creation, what's not important for us to believe about creation. And then after that, we're going to track week by week through some of the most important and some of the most challenging narratives in the Old Testament until we get to the New Testament and end on the final book of the New Testament, the book of the Revelation, weeks and weeks from now. All right. If that sounds okay, say okay. okay. All right. So today I thought that the best place to begin would be with the beginning. So if you opened up your Bible, you would find that the first book in this collection of books is the first book called Genesis. And we call it Genesis because it's the book of beginnings. It's the book of origins. That's what it actually means. And so when you open up the first page of the Bible, Imagine for a moment that you've never read a Bible before and imagine for a moment that you've never heard anything about the Bible. Just try to connect with the opening lines of what Moses wrote 3,500 or so years ago. This is how it begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, here in London, Williamsburg, Somerset, let's all just read this out loud together. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now. We've heard these words our entire life. And so we're just going to start here today to build a case for where we're going to be at in week three. Now, here's what the Bible does. From the very first moment that we open the Bible, the Bible provides us with answers. And not only does it provide us with answers, but it points us to places where we can get answers about life's two most important questions. And the two most important questions in all of life are these two questions Does God exist? That's the first and foremost, most important question anybody's going to wrestle to the ground. Does God exist? You know, am I a theist or am I an atheist? Am I agnostic? I'm just not sure. Does God exist? Most people on earth say yes. Some people say no. Some people say I don't know. But for Christians, for Christians, we absolutely would say yes. Yes, God exists. And so once you settle that particular question and you say yes, yes. Because you believe, yeah, I think God does exist. I may not be sure who He is, or you know all of that, but I do believe God exists. The second question, the follow-up question, is the second most important question. Not only is it, does God exist, but the second question is, what kind of God exists? What is God like? So what source, and what authority do we have in order to try to answer those two questions? Because without a source and without an authority to go find those answers, we are left trying to create a God into our own image. We are left trying to decide, you know, if if I were God, here's how I'd be, or here's how I think God is, and this is how I think God would behave, and this is what I think God feels, and this is what I think God would say... Without a source and without an authority, we would be left to create a God of our own design. And whenever you or whenever I choose to design our own God, it almost always suits our desires for our life. And so we want a God who allows us to live ultimately the way that we want to live. And so when the Bible though begins at the very beginning, when Moses started in Genesis one verse one, he said in the beginning, He assumes God's existence. And I don't know about you, but I heard all of my life. I heard all of my life. The Bible never makes a case for the existence of God. How many has has heard that before? All right, nobody. All right, so, (laughs) only me, only me. But I was told all of my life, the Bible doesn't make a case for the existence of God. When you open up Genesis 1 and 1, the Bible just assumes the existence of God. It just assumes the reality of God, but it's not true. In Genesis 1 verse 1, Moses, 3,500 years ago, is making a subtle but significant case for the existence of God. And so if you're a middle school student, if you're a high school student, or a college student, or you're in your 20s or 30s, or maybe even your 50s or 60s, and you're trying to make up your mind about, can I really believe that God exists? You need to understand that 3,000 plus years ago, before the laws of physics or chemistry were ever discovered, before cosmology, before astronomy, before any of those things, Moses makes an incredible claim that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You say, well, what's so significant about that? What's so huge about that? Because Moses claims in an era before science that the universe... What we can see in the observable universe, once upon a time, the universe had a beginning. Now, this is a big deal. This is why we need to thoughtfully read the Bible. This is why we've not thoughtfully taught the Bible in America, and we're seeing what's happening all around us with people deciding they can't believe anymore. When you thoughtfully read Genesis 1-1, and you just camp out there for just a moment, and you just start thinking about what is Moses saying? He is speaking to us in a very modern way. He is speaking to us in scientific ways that the most scientifically minded person can understand. Here's what Moses is saying. The universe cannot account for its own existence. The universe cannot explain itself. The universe cannot bring evidence to show how it brought forth itself because the universe had a beginning. So it cannot account for its own existence. Moses is saying that once upon a time there was a beginning to time, space, and matter. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, time, space, and matter. And here's what he's saying. Just track with me for just a minute. Just track with me for just a moment. He's saying this. He's saying that before the laws of physics and chemistry came into being, there was nothing. There was a time when there was no such thing as the laws of physics and chemistry. He was saying once upon a time, there was a time before nature And if nature had a beginning, listen, this is big. If nature had a beginning, the cause of nature cannot be a natural cause. It has to be something outside of nature or something supernatural. Because the natural cannot create itself. Time cannot give birth to time. It it, it can't work that way. And so Moses... He is bringing us into the 21st century 3,500 years ago. And so here's what we find in the beginning of the Bible. In the beginning of the Bible, we are introduced to the beginning of the world. In the beginning of the Bible, we are introduced to the beginning of the world. And this is a big deal because I'm about to tell you why it's a big deal. From the time of Aristotle, from the time of Aristotle to the early 1920s, the scientific perspective from the most prolific minds on the face of the planet was this. The universe was eternal. The universe is infinite. The universe, the cosmos, what we can see, observable space, it has always been. It was called the static universe theory. And and the smartest of the smart believed that there was never a time when our universe wasn't. They just believed that our universe had always existed. And even though there were philosophical problems with that, we can talk about that another time. Eventually, Albert Einstein He decided that there was a scientific problem with that. Because once upon a time, he believed that the universe was eternal. And then he began to formulate what we know as the law of relativity. And the law of relativity seemed to suggest to Einstein that once upon a time, there was a beginning to time, space, and matter. And that meant that once upon a time, there was a mathematical nothing. He didn't like it. He didn't like what it meant He didn't like the implications of it. It took him some time to come around. And in the 1920s, somewhere around 1925, I think 1926, he traveled to California and he went to the California Observatory. And he met up with a guy, Edwin Hubble, that we named the Hubble telescope after. And he looked through Hubble's telescope and he actually saw for the first time what Hubble had discovered in what is known as the red shift. And the red shift is the universe is moving further and further and further and further and further further away from itself. And the implications was this, that if you press rewind on a cosmic tape, you would see that the universe would begin to collapse upon itself into a small nothing. And so Einstein and the rest of science began to reevaluate this to say, you know what? Once upon a time, the universe had a beginning. This was furthered in, you know, 1965 with the discovery uh, of cosmic background radiation. And then in the 1980s, NASA actually got a picture of cosmic background radiation. And cosmic background radiation is af- actually the afterglow of the Big Bang or what they call the afterglow of the Big Bang. The project manager, George Smoot from NASA, said when he saw those pictures, he called it, We are seeing the fingerprints of God because now we know that the universe had a beginning. 3,500 years ago, Moses wrote that the heavens and the earth had a beginning. And it took us thousands of years to catch up with what Moses evidently understood from the very beginning of the scriptures. And so from Genesis 1 verse 1, we're, we're all forced to look at a question and here's the question. Did no one create something out of nothing or did someone create something out of nothing? And there's a logical case to be made for the latter. Someone had to create something out of nothing because because that sounds a whole lot more logical than no one created something out of nothing. And from Genesis one, we are introduced to logic. We are introduced to a logical case for the existence of God that says this, Everything that has a beginning has a cause, right? That's science, the law of causality. That everything that has a beginning has a cause. Why is that important? Well, the universe had a beginning. And if the universe had a beginning, therefore, the universe had a cause. If time, space, and matter had a cause, if there was a beginning to time, space, and matter, then that first cause that caused time, space, and matter must be timeless, spaceless, immaterial, and all-powerful. Does that not begin to sound like God? Moses, from the very beginning, he points us to one of the sources. Next week, we're going to talk about the second source. But in Genesis 1 verse 1, he begins to point us in the direction of one of the great sources that we have to answer life's great question. Does God exist and what is he like? He points us to the observable universe. Moses, he looks at a group of people that have been slaves in Egypt that we'll talk about in a few weeks. And he writes to them, and he writes to his Hebrew brothers and sisters, and he says, I want you to keep your eyes on nature. Not so that you worship nature, but you would worship the one who created nature. Because nature is much too small a thing to worship. What did all the people that we find throughout the Old Testament, what did they do? They worship creation. They worship the created order, the sun, the moon, the stars, and all of those things. In Egypt, they worshiped animals. They worshiped trees. They worshiped nature. And Moses, he writes to say, listen, put your eyes on nature, but not to worship nature. Because nature is much too small an object to worship. Worship the one who authored nature, who designed nature, who created nature as a means to grow your faith. And so this this became a part of Hebrew culture. This became a part of how they grew their faith. This became part of how they experienced God. So 1500 years after Moses wrote Genesis 1-1, King David wrote a song and it's recorded in Psalm 19. And he said here, the heavens declare the glory of God. Let's all just say that together. The heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hand. This was 1,500 years, so this is part of their culture. They they didn't, you know, try to get people not to pay attention to what could be observed. And, And what's another way to think about science? That which can be observed. So from the very beginning, God has invited us, the authors of Scripture have invited all of us to look at the observable world. That we shouldn't be intimidated by the observable world. We shouldn't be intimidated by what we see through telescopes or what we see through microscopes. That in the end, everything that we can experience and see and observe, especially as it relates to the heavens, it is declaring the glory of God. Amen. And David, who was a shepherd for you know, his father Jesse, I imagine he spent you know, a lot of uh, nights out there on the hills of Judea. And as he sat out there and he looked up at the skies, I imagine that sooner or later it dawned on him evidently that the cosmos are communicating with us that the heavens are communicating with us. The heavenly bodies, the star, the moon, the sun, they're communicating with us. They are are declaring to us, demonstrating to us, declaring over us the greatness of God. And from the very beginning, we're, we're pointed in the direction of what's observable. That's the reason nature has been called and the heavens have been called the cathedral of God. And there we see the galactic grandeur of God. Just as a canvas points to the artist or a sonnet points to the composer, the heavens point us in the direction of God. Listen to what he goes on to say. He says, day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. Every day, all day, in every season, they're speaking to us. They're communicating with us. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice, their voice is in what we can see. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words, to the end of the world. The heavens are always speaking to you and speaking to me about the greatness of God. As one person said, it's the celestial symphony that never ends. You say, what does this mean? It means that if you're exploring faith, if you're trying to decide whether you should believe or not believe, or if you're barely trying to hang on to this idea that something outside of time, space, and matter exists and he's God, and if you're struggling to hold on to that day in and day out because of the circumstances of life, here's what David's inviting all of us to do. Stop. Pause. Walk outside this evening and give yourself the time to think, to contemplate, to look up, to wonder, and to listen to the enormity and the complexity of what the universe is saying to us. Because when you look up and, and the more we understand about it, because now what we understand about what we see, Psalms 19 has never been more true. Psalm 19 has never been more to the point when you see that there seems to be a design choreography to everything that we can see in the heavens. I loved one book I was reading, said that God invites us all to become amateur astrologers. that God invites us to do what we don't do well in the 21st century. Stop. Shut off the phone, turn off the television, calm down the schedule and just go let yourself look up and listen. Because if you look up and listen, you just might begin to experience the God who created it and perhaps encounter the very fingerprints of God himself. He goes on and says, in the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. He said, just not during the, you know, the night, but the day as well. It's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion ready to run its course. I love this. I mean, this is incredible. This is, this is way before <laughs> discoveries that we hold true today in science, but yet Moses and David are trying to create a culture of people who look up and listen to realize there's something outside of us. There's something outside of time. There's something outside of space. There's something outside of this material universe and his name is God and he is big and he is great. Now Christians, I know this sounds bad, but you know Christians pray stupid prayers from time to time. One of one of we mean well, and you'll catch me sooner or later. I'll say it, and you'll be like, "Stupid prayer, stupid prayer." (laughs) So I'm not going to say I'm never going to pray it, but I'm going to tell you I don't have to pray it. All right, and neither do you. But Christians will say all the time, "Lord, show me Your glory, God. Just God, show us Your glory, God. We're going to meet together, so God, show us Your glory, God. I just want to see Your glory, God. Show me Your glory." And I imagine God's up there saying, I have. <laughs> oh. Perhaps the reason why God feels so distant to many of us, that we can't emotionally connect with God. That, that we cannot bring our theology and our emotional realities Together is one. We say we believe in God, but as far as experiencing God or sensing God or feeling that God is near, we believe he's near, but he doesn't feel near. Perhaps the reason is we just don't stop long enough. We, we just don't pause and think long enough. We don't contemplate. We're not thoughtful. I took Shepherd outside the other night in Grayson. Knowing I was going to be talking about this, I said, sit down, boys, look up. <laughs> I need to tell you all some things. Because when we look up, we need to listen to what the voice of the heavens are saying to us. One person said that nature is the perceivable book that God has written. Thomas Aquinas said that God's written two books, just not the Bible, but the book of nature, the book of stars. Newton, who's one of the founders of science, said that God has written the universe in the language of mathematics that mathematics is the language of God. That there are laws of physics and chemistry. There are properties to gravity. There are anthropological, uh, anthropology constants that exist in our world. That, that there are mathematical certainties that if you alter them one part in 100,000, life isn't possible. The whole world around us is able to be broken down into mathematics. And perhaps he was right, maybe it is. The language of God. So think about it. If it's been a long time since you experienced God, think about his words that the heavens declare the glory of God. And so just let me tell you a few things. And I don't want you to remember these things. I don't want you to, you know, you don't have to take these notes. I don't want you to remember these things. I want you to feel these things. I want you to think about how the sun declares the glory of God. The sun is the closest star to our earth it's 93 million miles away. Now I find that very hard to just even grasp, but it's one of the smallest numbers that we have to grasp in our universe. Our star is 93 million miles away. Our sun is so big, our sun is so big, you could put a million Earths inside the sun. That's incredible. It has an 870,000 mile diameter. No wonder, David said, the heavens are declaring and demonstrating the greatness of God. If you got in a jet plane traveling at 500 miles an hour, all right, that's about the average plane, 500 miles an hour. If you went out there into space, it would take you three weeks, you know, 500 miles an hour to get to the moon, but it would take you 21 years to get to the sun how big this world that we live in and we walk outside and we look up into the sun and don't look up there too much you'll have to have an optometrist but you know you you just glance up there and, and you know there's a sun up there and David said it's talking to you it's demonstrating for you it's declaring over you the reality of God in one second in one second everybody say one second In one second, the sun releases as much energy as what 2.5 billion power plants could produce in an entire year on earth. We're talking about amazing things. We're talking about mind-bending things. Here's a picture of our sun. This is it right there. That's that's our star, that's our sun. Let me give you a little picture of where we are compared to the sun. This is the sun and here we are on Earth that's us we feel like the center of the universe we feel like it's so big here and as amazing and as big as some of the things on this earth is we're just a small piece of the heavens that are declaring the glory of God not only the Sun but the stars. the next time you walk outside and you look outside and you you look up into the skies and you see maybe a few stars and, you know, they say we can, we can only see about as many as 4,000 stars within our field of reference. And sometimes they seem much closer than they are. The next closest star to us after the sun, I just want you to, again, you don't have to remember this, I want you to feel it. The next closest star to us after the sun is 4.3 light years away. And let me just tell you this, a light year is 6 trillion years or 6 trillion miles. So 4.3 light years, take four, multiply by six, 24 trillion miles away is the next closest star. If you got in a plane at 500 miles an hour, it would take you six million years to get there. But you're a hot shot. You're going to upgrade and your plane can go a thousand miles an hour. It's three million years to get to the next closest star. There's a star out there called 61 Cygni, and it's so far out there, it's actually, you know, if you were traveling at 93,000 miles per hour, it would take you 78 years to get there. That's how big the heavens are. That's how deep space is. And and to give you a context, because, you know, I'm pretty sarcastic when it comes to math, Uh, you know, like, you know, millions, billions, and trillions. Uh, A million seconds ago, a million seconds ago, that's 11 days. A billion seconds ago, 31 years. A trillion seconds ago is 31,000 years ago. I mean, we're talking about things that are mind-bending. Again, I don't want you to understand it. I just want you to feel it because at the end of our understanding, that is the beginning of our awe. That, That is the beginning of the weight of it all, that God may be whispering to us and perhaps shouting to us. If the earth was the size of a football, our sun would be about the size of a seven story building. But the largest star in the universe would be the size of Mount Everest four times over. The largest star, here's, here's, this is, that's our sun. And that's the biggest star in all the universe. The heavens, David would say. But declare the glory of God. And from the beginning, Moses said, God created the heavens and the earth. And he points us to this. Not only that, but then there's the galaxy. i, I got to move on. I, I, I'm, I'm, uh, okay, I could talk about this all day. Here's a picture of our galaxy, the Milky Way. Right there it is. All right, looks nothing like nougat and chocolate. I don't know. But there it is. Milky Way. From, from one side to the other, it's 200,000 light years across. Traveling at the speed of light over 180,000 miles per second. It would take you 200,000 years at the speed of light to get from one end of the galaxy to the other. And there are trillions of galaxies in the observable universe. Are you kidding me? There's 400 billion stars in our galaxy alone. Andromeda. The next nearest galaxy to us is 2.5 million light years from us. That's 15 quintillion miles. If you traveled at 93,000 miles per hour, it would take you 4. trillion years to get there. Again, feel it. This is where we are. This is what's declaring to us through science, cosmology, astronomy. Every time we look through a telescope, we're learning how big God is. And then there's the universe. Our observable universe is 93 billion light years in diameter. I don't even have a context for that. And David says, that the heavens declare the glory of God. One galaxy alone in our universe has four trillion stars. Do you know, and this is where I'll leave it and we'll wrap it up. If you could go to every beach on the face of the planet and take all the grains of sand on all the beaches of the world and separate them out, it would not even be close to the number of stars that we have in the universe that we can presently observe. You say, well, Why'd you tell us all that? What does that mean for us personally? Well, here's what I think it means for us. God is bigger than what's behind us, and God is bigger than whatever may be in front of us. I think that's what we can learn about this. That ever how it started, whatever process, whatever mechanism, ever how long it took, God is bigger. And then on a more personal level, whatever's behind me, whatever failure, whatever mistake, whatever thing I shouldn't have said and I said and I shouldn't have done, but I did, God is bigger than what's behind me, but the heavens remind me that God is bigger than anything that I'll face on this little bitty earth of mine. Because as God, he is greater than my greatest fear. He's greater than my greatest disappointment. He is greater than my greatest heartbreak. He is greater than my greatest doubt. He is greater than my greatest enemy this is what the scriptures are pointing us to no wonder david said when i consider your heavens the work of your fingers the moon and the stars which you have set in place i ask what is man that you are mindful of them human beings god that you care about us we hear about quintillion and we hear about billion and millions and all of this david had none of the math that we have today but yet he said when i look up God, who are we? That you would be mindful of us. Isaiah the prophet, he would say it like this. To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all of this? He who brings out the starry host one by one. And he calls them each by their name because of his great power and his mighty strength. Not one of them is missing. And then this is where it gets personal. Do you not know, have you not heard that the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He will not grow tired. You grow tired, but he doesn't grow tired. He doesn't grow weary. And his understanding, no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary. He increases the power of the weak. Even youth will grow tired and be weary. Young men will stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. Those who are confident in the vastness of God, the greatness of God, the bigness of God, they will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary, and they will walk, and they will not faint. Amen. Amen. And this is the message for us. Hope is the confidence that whatever may come against me, it will never be greater than the God who is for me and with me. And we get that from the very first line of the story. So look up and listen to the voice of the heavens. Declaring the reality of a God bigger than you can understand. At the end of your understanding begins the beginning of your awe. Heavenly Father, God, I pray that we would just stop, think about these things, feel these things. God, that sometime today we would walk outside, sometime tonight we would walk outside and. Lord, we just leave everything else aside. Maybe take our family. Just just sit out there. Have conversation. Look up. Talk about these things. And let the voice of the heavens remind us about your reality and your greatness. Let's all stand together at all of our campuses. We're going to sing one last song together to help us apply what we've talked about. You know, the scripture says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And we're going to sing a song that's going to challenge us to think about these things. To think about how big of this world that we can see and all the parts that we can't. That testify to us how great God is and how big he is. And how we can place our hope and our confidence in his hands. Father, help us as we sing this to be inspired to worship you that you are great and you are greatly to be praised in this moment, in this place, in every place, at every moment. Help us to sing to you in Jesus' name.